And we invite any children here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church if they'd like. While the children are being dismissed, I invite you to open up your Bibles to today's text, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. Hebrews 3, 7 to 19. You can find that on page 1185 if you're using a pew Bible. Page 1185, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. And let me just read the passage this morning as we get going here. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation and said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was He angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter His rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. You know, like the Israelites in the Old Testament, we who are Christians in the New Testament era have been freed from slavery. In the Old Testament, they were in slavery in Egypt and they were ruled over by Pharaoh. He was their tyrant. But in the New Testament times, we've been delivered from a greater slavery. We've been uh, delivered from slavery to our sins and uh, uh, delivered from the tyranny of Satan and of the world. And so we've been rescued by a deliverer. In the Old Testament, his name was Moses. He rescued the people of Israel. But as we saw last week, if you were here, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6... Uh, we have received a greater deliverer named Jesus. And so Jesus has rescued us from the Egypt of our sins. And, and not only that, but we see in the, in the Bible that Jesus is the Passover lamb who was sacrificed, just as there was a Passover lamb sacrificed in the Old Testament. So as Christians, we find that we have this common experience of being redeemed by Jesus. Even though we come from very different walks of life, Maybe we were born in different parts of the world or parts of the country. Even though we come from different generations with different values and understandings of life, yet as Christians we find ourselves continually united around an experience of being redeemed from the slavery of our sin by Jesus and His death on the cross. As, you know, so the story Risa told up here, even though it was probably different from every one of our stories, yet as Christians it was very much the same as every one of our stories where we came to a realization of our need for a Savior. So we find ourselves as Christians now in this place like the Israelites were, where we're no longer in Egypt, but we haven't yet reached the promised land of heaven. 
And we're kind of in this in-between journey phase in the wilderness as the Israelites were. We're a pilgrim people. And the, the recurring problem of living in the wilderness, of being out of Egypt and on our way to heaven is this, is that Egypt is still calling us back. Egypt is still trying to woo us back to the old life. You know, uh, Risa was baptized. Baptism is a symbol that Jesus gave us of being immersed in water, the old life is buried, and then raised up to a new life in Christ. And the temptation is we want to keep going back to that old life. And and there's a, a siren song of seduction sort of calling us back that way to old relationships that we shouldn't have and old uh, addictions and habits and previous patterns of relating that we used to do instinctively. Anger and vulgarity and lying and uh, violence in some cases or despair and anxiety or um, the fear of people, the fear of man. Going back to old patterns of greed and to lust and to everything else we used to do. All those things we used to be that Jesus has saved us from. And so we've been delivered to this new life, and yet it still allures us back. I think especially when we go through difficulties and trials in the Christian life. That's especially when Egypt seems pretty tempting. Because, you know, going forward, you think about it this way. We're following Jesus to Cana, to the Promised Land, but we've never seen Jesus with our physical eyes. Nor have we seen the Promised Land to which we're going with our physical eyes. So we're going to a place we've never seen, following a God we cannot yet see with our physical eyes. So we're going based on faith in His Word and His promises. So when the going gets tough, ah, it's really difficult to keep pressing forward. And that's when the temptation comes to go back to a world that we used to know, that we can see, to idols that can be seen and touched, to an old way of existence. And this is the tension in the Christian life. And that's, uh, as we've been seeing in Hebrews, what Hebrews was written to address. This challenge in Christian living that we face to keep going forward with Christ and not fall back and go back to Egypt. And so Hebrews was written to call us forward and spur us on. And that's what we have in our text today. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 19, is essentially a reflection upon the story of Israel in the Old Testament after they left Egypt, but before they came to the Promised Land. And it's a reflection on a certain incident that took place in Israel to serve as a warning for us not to go back. Because as we'll see, Israel, they got to the verge of the Promised Land, and rather than trusting the promises of God and going forward, they wanted to go back. And so it's a warning to us. So look again at our text, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. The point of this text being, do not fall back into unbelief. Don't go backward. And if you look at uh, our text, you'll see that there's, it falls into two sections. The first section is verses 7 to 11, which is an Old Testament quotation. We're going to get to that in a minute. And then verses 12 to 19, which is the reflection upon, the commentary on the Old Testament quotation. So, pretty simple. There's a text and then a reflection. It's almost like a little sermon. There's a text being read and then an explanation, interpretation, application of that text. In verses 12 to 19. So first of all, let's look at the text. Verses 7 to 11. It says, So as the Holy Spirit says, not said, but says, it's present tense in Greek. It's being said to us now. We're being called today to listen to the Scripture. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert when your fathers tested and tried Me 
and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now, as I said, that's a quotation. It's from Psalm chapter 95. And so I, I think to really understand it, we need to go back to Psalm 95. So put a bookmark here in Hebrews 3. Let's go back to the original passage. Psalm 95. It's on page 591. And bookmark Hebrews 3. We'll go back. Psalm 95 is an interesting passage. It was one that was read uh, at the time of Christ. It was read commonly in Jewish synagogues before Friday night Sabbath service and before Saturday morning Sabbath services. So this text would have been very familiar to the uh, any of the Christians there who had, who had been raised in the synagogue. And it's a great passage. Psalm 95 is wonderful. What Psalm 95 is, is essentially a call to worship. It's something you read at the beginning of a worship time to call people together, to say, come on, all the saints, come together and worship God. And you'll notice that, it, that Psalm 95 falls into two halves. The first half is verses 1 to 7, which call us in a very celebrative, jubilant atmosphere to come and worship God. Let me just read it really quickly. Psalm 95, verse 1. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. And what a great call to worship. Don't you want to worship God when you read that? Thinking about this great shepherd who cares for us. So it's this jubilant, upbeat, joyful call to worship God. And then there's this drastic shifting of gears in verse 8 and the end of verse 7, where we go from a jubilant, upbeat, call to worship to a very stern, almost scary warning not to fall away from God. So come worship God and be careful not to fall away from Him. And that's where our quotation comes from Hebrews chapter 3. See, and there it is. Uh, Look at Psalm 95 verse 7. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And we have the quotation that we see in Hebrews 3. So really, I think Psalm 95 and Hebrews chapter 3 are doing the same thing. They're both calling the community of faith to stay faithful to God and not fall back into unbelief, not to go back to Egypt. Now, what is Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11 talking about? He's talking about don't harden your hearts like you did before. These people he was angry with for 40 years, he said they wouldn't enter his rest. What is that all talking about? Well, Psalm 95 is reflecting on yet a previous Scripture. So I want to go there now. Are you still with me? Okay. So <laughs> Hebrews 3 is a quotation sending us back to Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is a reflection on a previous incident in Israel's history. So let's now go back to the original incident that inspired this chain of quotations. It's in Numbers chapter 13. It's in the beginning of your Bible. It's on page 143. Numbers chapter 13, verse 26. Page 143. Let me just tell you what's going on in this part of the Bible. The Israelites have left Egypt. They've got the Ten Commandments. They've traveled through the wilderness. 
They've come to the edge of the promised land and now it's time to go into the promised land. And so God is, is saying, it's time to go. I'm going to give you the promised land, land of Cana. These people are a bunch of slaves. They've never been to the promised land. They don't even know what it's like. They've just heard it talked about all the years. They've never been there because they've been in slavery. Now they're there. They're on the edge of the promised land. God's saying, time to go in. So Moses says, all right, we're going in. Step one, recon. Twelve spies. We need 12 spies to go and do recon, find out what's in there. We, we need to get, you know, locations, targets, troop sizes. We've got to find out what we're going into. So they send in 12 spies, and these 12 spies uh, are one for each of the tribes of Israel. They go in, they come back. And now this is where I'm going to pick up the story with the spies' report. Look at verse 26 of chapter 13. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's the fruit. You know, God said, I'm going to send you to a land flowing with milk and honey. You can imagine these slaves in Egypt like, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, then they get there and they, it's just like God said. It does flow with milk and honey. This is a great place to settle. But... <laughs> And here's the but, verse 28. But the people who live there are powerful and their cities are fortified and very large. We saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jezebites, the Amorites live in the hill country, the Canaanites, there's probably termites. I mean, the place is infested. <laughs> it's infested with bad people. But yeah, we can't go in there. There's people there. And they're big and they're powerful and they have big cities and they have chariots and they're tough. How can we do this? Verse 30, I love Caleb. Then Caleb, he's one of the 12 spies, silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. Let's go. Yeah, that's right. There's all the people there. Let's go. God said we can go. God's going to help us. What, what's the big deal? Come on. Time to go. Verse 31, but the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw were of great size. They're giant people. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. So the spies come back, they have two reports. There's a majority report and a minority report. The majority report says, too scary, giants, walls, bad people, can't go in. The minority report says, what's the big deal? God's bigger than that, let's go. And so the minority report is just two guys, as we'll see. It's Joshua and Caleb, and the other ten say, no, we can't do it. So will they believe God or not? Will they keep going forward or what? And unfortunately, the Israelite community listens to the majority report. If you look at verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1, rather. It says, That night all the people of the community raised their voices and cheered. No, that's what they should have been doing. Instead, they wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. There we go. Get this. 
wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? I want to go home. I want to go back. Let's go back to slavery. Let's go back. They're giving up on what God is doing. They're intimidated by what they're seeing. So verse 5, Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land. So there's the minority report, guys. They tore their clothes. They're grieving. And said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord's pleased with us, He will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and He'll give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. You Israelites, you're afraid of the wrong thing. You're afraid of the giants. You're afraid of the cities, but you're not afraid of God. You're all mixed up. There's only one thing you need to fear. God. You know, don't be afraid of stock markets. Don't be afraid of political transitions. Do not fear wars. Don't be afraid of diseases and illnesses. There's only one thing we need to fear. God. And and fear sin. There's a a, a great preacher in the early church who was named John Chrysostom. Uh, He was was such a great preacher, they called him the golden mouth. And and he uh, preached in... um, in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And, and uh, the, the empress at the time was a lady named Eudexia. And she didn't like him because he was pretty fearless. He was pretty bold. And so he sent, she sent a death threat against him and said, you had better stop preaching or you know, you're know you going to have it. And apparently the story goes that John Chrysostom sent back a word to her that says, I fear nothing but sin. And that's the attitude we need to have as Christians, that we fear nothing but sin. There's only one thing to be worried about in this world, and that is rebelling against the Lord. But if we will walk with God, then what do we have to be afraid of? But unfortunately, verse 7, verse 10 rather, the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Enough of that. Let's just kill these guys and go back to Egypt. Because at this point, there's only two directions. You can't stay in that blasted wilderness, desert. You either got to go into the promised land and follow God, back to Egypt. There's one or two choices. And they said, we're going back. We don't care what you say. But then, verse 10, the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I've performed among them? So he's got two questions. God has two questions. How long will they treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? And I would posit to you this morning that those two questions are essentially one question in two parts. The question is, why are they treating me with contempt? Well, how are they treating with him? How are they doing the contempting? Well, they're not believing in him. That the way they are contempt, showing contempt for God, is by not believing in God. So you see, the root problem here is not the size of the inhabitants of the land. The root problem is not the the military preparedness or lack thereof of the Israelites. The root problem is a spiritual one, not a tactical problem. The the problem is, do they trust God or not? 
And God says, they show contempt for me. They, by, by not trusting me, what they're saying about me is, I'm not powerful, I'm not good, I'm not their Savior. Even though I've shown them, you know, a bazillion times that I am, over and over, day after day, even as they pick up their manna every day and eat it, they still doubt who I am. And notice when it says here, they refuse to believe in me. I, I want to just make it clear, and you probably see this, that believing in God here is talking a lot more about more than just mentally affirming the existence of God, right? And I'm always nervous when I talk about believing in God. Uh, I don't like to use that language in the pulpit. I don't like to use it in interpersonal conversations, not because I, I'm against believing in God, but I think it's because when people use that phraseology today, we typically mean something by believing in God much smaller and narrower than what the Bible means. What people today mean is, I believe in God is like, I believe that, you know, there's penguins in Antarctica. Like, yeah, so do I. There's penguins there. I mean, I'm not going to go there. I don't really care. It's not going to affect how I live my life. And I think people like that. It's like, yeah, yeah, there's a God out there, and I'm kind of comforted by the fact, knowing, thinking that he's out there somewhere. It's like what Risa was talking about in her testimony. The difference between just believing in God generically and coming to trust in Jesus is a big difference. I thought she really articulated that, that distinction very well. The difference between just sort of having a, a notional belief in God. Uh, Gallup in uh, 2008, this year of May 2008, he did a poll. I guess he does this poll frequently. He asked Americans what they believed. And he asked the question, do you believe in God? 93% of Americans said yes. That they either believed in God or some version of that, like a higher power or something. But 93% of Americans said yeah. And only 6% said no. 1% said no opinion. So, um, so, you know, you have 93% of Americans saying, yeah, I believe in God. But I, I have a suspicion that when 93% of Americans say that, that they're not all saying the same kind of belief we're talking about here. Not just a mentally affirming that God exists somewhere, but being willing to take that step of faith and a risk and say, I will act on what God says. I will trust the promises of God that lead me into a particular type of action. That's the kind of belief we're talking about. And so their problem is unbelief. They've shown contempt for God again and again and again and again. And so this incident is kind of the culmination of all their rebellion throughout the wilderness. And so finally God says, that's it, I'm done. And I won't read the rest of it, but let me just summarize. Verse 12, basically God says, I'm done. I'm going to control, alt, delete these people. <laughs> We're going to wipe them out. And I'm going to start over. New Israel. Moses, you're going to lead the new Israel. We're going to get rid of the old one. And Moses in verse 13 pleads with God. He says, God, if you do that, the nations are going to think you're not a powerful God. God says, fine. They're still not going to enter the promised land. God swears an oath they're not going to enter the promised land. He says, instead, I'm going to march them around the desert for 40 years until that generation that rebelled against me lies dead in the desert and their kids are going into the promised land. That's the plan. So God's going to fulfill His promise, but He's going to do it on His terms. And so God sends... The Israelites back and away. So now, turn back to Hebrews. I wish we had time to look back at Psalm 95. Let's just go straight to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 and 11 then, through 11, is recalling the wilderness rebellion that culminated at the great catastrophic revolt and the land at the edge of the promised land. And what is the application that the writer of Hebrews draws for us? It's very simple. Beware of unbelief. 
Beware of doubting God the way the Israelites did. Beware of not believing the promises of God the way the Israelites failed to uh, believe His promises. Look at verse 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. So the problem is unbelief. Now check this out. Look at verse 19, which is the end of the section. It says, So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. So in this explanation section, in the first verse, in the first sentence, in the last sentence, you have a warning against unbelief. Uh, it's, it's like two parts of a sandwich. It, it's bookends. Or we call this in um, biblical studies an inclusio. It includes the material that's within it. And so it's, it's telling us what this section is about. It's about a warning against unbelief. Not trusting in the promises and the Word of God. Notice some of the characteristics of unbelief. Verse 12, it's sinful. It's a sin to disrespect God by not trusting when He tells us to do something. Or verse 13, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That's a great word to describe what goes through the dynamics of the heart when we stop believing in God's promises. There's a, sort of a, a spiritual calcification. We, we tense our soul against God so that He can't get in. And that is the hardening of the heart. Have you ever known anyone with a hard heart? Have you ever had a hard heart? You know, where you just say, I'm done. You know, the hard-hearted person, they're not listening anymore. They're tuning it all out. It's over. It's done. I'm not listening. Forget about it. You know, some of us have been in relationships where the relationship started very warmly and tenderly with intimacy, but then things happen as life happens and choices are made and paths are taken and, and there comes to a day where the, the other person just says, that's it, I'm done. Come on, let's keep trying. I'm done. And that heart is closed and there's like nothing you can do to convince the person. You know, it, it does take, take two to have a relationship. And so it's the same kind of thing with God we can reach that point where we just close down our hearts and we say, that's it. I, I, I'm not going to believe anymore. Yeah, Moses is God's man. Fine, I'm going to kill him so we can go back to Egypt. I want to go back to Egypt is what it comes down to. And, and we're no longer able to be reasoned with, persuaded because we've shut our hearts down. Unbelief is a hardening of the heart where we close down against the promises and the Word of God and we stop trusting what God has said. It's deceitful. Look at verse 13 hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You know, it, it sneaks up on you. Unbelief is so treacherous, so sneaky. It is like termites. You know? You always got to be on the guard against termites. You know, I grew up out west. We didn't have termites. I came out here and there's termites. I'm like, what, what are termites? We had cockroaches in Las Vegas. I think I like cockroaches. They don't eat your house. They're just gross. They eat your food. Termites eat your house. You know, and they sneak into your house and they eat it. You have to constantly be on guard against this creeping unbelief that is sort of gnawing at the edges of our souls as Christians. It's a constant battle. You know, if we lose our faith in God, if we, if we cross that line to having hard hearts, then how can we live the Christian life? Faith is the, is the dynamic of the Christian life. Trusting the Word of God and the promises of God. And that's what I mean by faith. I mean trusting what God says. Not just like, you know, sometimes people just do kind of things they shouldn't do. And, and they're silly things, and, and they're like, well, I'm just trusting God, and then it collapses. Well, th that's not what I mean, but I don't mean that by faith, just doing silly things and claiming you trust God. I mean obeying His Word and doing what His Word says. 
That's what I mean by stepping out in faith. God told them they could take the promised land. So they should have listened to His Word. And so we have God's Word to us. And do we listen? Do we trust? Um, You know, He's told us to lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Have we laid up treasures in heaven? Or do we look at the giants of uh, financial crisis in the world and say, I can't tithe. I can't give to a missionary. I can't give to a friend in need. I can't have people over to my house and show hospitality. You know, how are we going to pay for all this? Or do we trust God and say, we're going to trust Him? Um, In a relationship, do, do we seek to honor God as far as it depends upon us? Maybe it's a difficult marriage or difficult relationship. Do we trust that God can give us the strength to keep loving that person? Do we desire to honor God? And like I said, I understand it takes two to make a relationship work, but as far as it's dependent upon our end of the equation, are we still trusting God even in a difficult relationship? Or do we say, you know what? Not even with God. I can't even do this. Forget it. I'm done. Out. We have to trust Him. And what about missions? I was thinking about world missions as it relates to this idea of trusting God. Have you ever think about world missions? What, what a crazy idea. You know, you're going to what? You're going to take your family and go where? To Afghanistan? To, to what? Be with tribal people? Are you kidding me? Do you know what happens over there? People get hurt. They don't have modern conveniences. I mean, they don't, they don't have iPhones. I mean, you know, they don't, what are you going to do? There? Maybe they do. I don't know. <laughs> There's all these conveniences they don't have. How are you going to live over there? And yet people go to all parts of the world as missionaries. Why do they do that? Why do missionaries go out? It's because they're clinging to a promise of God where Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So we believe that, that God has sent us out in the world. In fact, I would say that's probably the closest parallel to the invasion of the promised land is that God has sent us out into the world to proclaim the gospel, not through the use of force, but through the willingness to give up our lives in love and humble service for others. And so missions is perhaps the most accurate application of the call to enter the promised land, to go into the world and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But why would you do that if you didn't believe the promises of God? What about us here in New England? I mean, we've got our own little mission field. It's called the South Shore of Boston. In need of a lot of help. You know? Oh, Boston. You can't be a Christian in Boston. You know, there's giants, there's nominalism and secularism and intellectual elitism. I mean, you you know, you don't go to Boston. That's where Christians leave. That's the bad place. Just keep a low profile if you're going to be a Christian in Boston. If you're going to be a Christian on the South Shore, just stay calm. Keep it on the down low. Don't talk it up. Just make it your private thing. You know. Do we, you can't church, plant a church in Boston, can you? You can't start new churches in Boston. That isn't done there. The giants are too big. You know? Does, does the call to make disciples of all nations apply to the South Shore of Boston or not? And if it does, then what are we whining about? Let's just go out and do what God's called us to do and trust that He's bigger than whatever we think is out there. And just, you know, not rudely, not uh, obnoxiously, but just as Christians, shining the light that God has given us. It's not meant to be kept inside. But once we stop believing in the promises of God, once we stop trusting what He's told us, the nerve of Christian living is severed and the whole thing begins to unwind and collapse. So, here's what we need to do. 
How do we protect ourselves against unbelief? Very quickly, look at verse 12. You've got to keep on the alert. Verse 12, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. See that phrase, see to it? That Greek word means watch out, stay alert, keep your eyes open. Look. Look, brothers. You've got to stay on the alert. This is not something that just happens by default. It's, it's a constant Christian living we have to be living sacrifices every day. We have to take up our cross daily. This is a constant work. Watch out for unbelief. It creeps in so subtly. Again, like the termites, they just sneak in the sides. You've got to keep your eyes open for that. Notice the second thing about this watching out. Verse 13, encourage one another. So in other words, it's not just up to me to personally sort of screw my courage in and just... Try harder as a Christian. I desperately need you as Christians to encourage me to stay faithful. And you need me to encourage you. And we need each other. You know, at the risk of sounding like a really annoying broken record, I'll say it again this week. Following Jesus is a team sport. And the team that God has established is called a local church. And that's where we're called together. Again, I, I just... What is, testimony was great. It almost felt like I wrote it for her so I could weave it into the sermon. But you know, she's talking about her Bible study and how important her Bible study has been to her. That's the Christian life of encouraging each other. And I know it's kind of cool and sophisticated today to be anti-church. And and yeah, the church has flaws. I see them every time I look in the mirror. You know? The church fails. The church is not perfect. But it's what God has given us. It's the community of faith. It's the hospital of God where we're being restored to Him. You know, what's the alternative as a Christian? To be a lone Christian? Trying to follow God in this world by myself? I mean, maybe you can handle that. I'm toast. I couldn't do that. I need you. I need you to keep encouraging me to follow Christ. And I need to be in a place where I can encourage you to follow Christ. That's what God's plan is. And then just look at the last word there. Encourage one another how often? Daily. This is a theme. Today, if you hear His voice, encourage one another daily. As long as it is called today. When is it called today? Always. It's always called today. So in other words, we always need daily encouragement. I thought about that. What if we took that literally? What if we literally tried to encourage each other daily? Okay, we come to church Sunday, we get encouraged. If you're in a Bible study during the week, that's another day, so that's two out of seven. But do we really take responsibility to encourage each other daily? I, I was kind of thinking about that. Like, I don't know. Have you ever been encouraged daily? Like, what if, what if we did an experiment? Like, pick a Christian friend in the church and say, all right, we're going to try this. For the rest of November, I'm going to send you an email or text message or leave you a voicemail every day, and you send one to me and, or some verse or something, and, and we'll try to encourage each other daily. I wonder what would happen if we just in, literally take that command and do what it says, not spiritualize it, but daily try to encourage each other. Do you know why we need to encourage each other daily? I'll tell you why. Because Egypt calls us daily. Egypt does not take a break. Egypt does not let up. Egypt calls us hourly. And so I desperately need you daily to encourage me to keep going in our faith because without it, we're, we're just sitting ducks for the enemy. So, brothers and sisters, beware of unbelief. Beware of fearing something else besides God. And let me just close. If I could just kind of shift gears really quick here. We, I've been talking most of this sermon to 
believers and the experience of the Christian life. Can I just speak to anyone here who maybe isn't in that category yet? Maybe you believe in God, but you haven't really come to trust Christ as your Savior. And I just want to say, you know, you're still in Egypt. And you need to come out of Egypt. And there's a way out of Egypt. It's great. And His name is Jesus. He's still rescuing people from Egypt today. But to to be rescued, we have to believe in the promises of God. And so here's the promise for you. This is the key to unlocking the gate. The promise is this. It was quoted by the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. He said this, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the way out. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. No penance, no acts of contrition, no crawling up and down the, the steps of South Shore Baptist Church on your knees. You know, no serving in a, a soup kitchen for a month to pay for the month of bad things you did. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Just trust in the promise of God to forgive and to save you. Let's pray. Our Father, today we hear Your voice. Lord, we do not want to harden our hearts. And so, Jesus, give us grace to be soft-hearted and responsive toward You. Lord, strengthen us against the siren song of seduction that comes from Egypt. Give us faith, because we know that faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen. Help us, Lord, to have faith in Christ to have faith in Your promises. God, even though we can't see Jesus with our physical eyes, we pray that You would show Him to us with our spiritual eyes. God, I pray for anyone here who's tempted to go back to Egypt, that You would give them strength to resist today. Lord, help us to be a real church, not just uh, a bunch of people in pews and not just a preacher in a pulpit, but Lord, help us to really love each other and encourage each other. Help me, Lord, to be more encouraging to this congregation to keep going in their faith. And God, I pray for anyone who still is in Egypt. Well, first of all, Lord, I pray You'd show them they're in Egypt. Because a lot of times, Lord, we don't think we are. And then, God, once that, like Risa said, we don't realize we're sinners. But I pray, God, let that realization come to us by Your grace. What a gift You could give us by showing us our need. And then, Lord, show us Jesus, the way out of Egypt. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name.